Hello, you're listening to the Science of Everything podcast, episode 28, Classical Conditioning, and I'm your host, James Fodor. In this episode, I'm going to discuss classical conditioning, the oldest type of learning uh, that is known about. Uh, in particular, I'll discuss the various elements of classical conditioning, including the conditioned and unconditioned responses and conditioned and unconditioned stimuli. I'll discuss some examples of classical conditioning. Uh, so that you can get a better understanding of how it works and what it is. I'll also go through some more specific aspects of classical conditioning, including the process of acquisition, generalization and discrimination, and extinction and recovery. I'll also then talk about some applications of classical conditioning in practical and uh, scholarly areas, such as taste aversion and various biological uh, factors that uh, can be better understood using the model of classical conditioning. Just a note, I was originally going to do this podcast as a single episode, including the next episode on operant conditioning, a different type of learning, but uh, because it grew too long, I've decided to split them up. So there'll be a, a sort of a second part to this where I talk about operant conditioning and also a bit on observational learning. Okay, so let's start off with classical conditioning. First of all, I'll need to define what I mean by learning or what psychologists mean by learning. Learning is generally defined as a relatively permanent change in behavior or knowledge that occurs as a result of experience. So key thing about learning there is that it has to be as a result of experience, not a change in behavior that results from maturation, for example, or through going through puberty or something like that. That is not considered learning, even though it results in a change of behavior. Okay, so now we'll start with classical conditioning. Classical conditioning is called classical conditioning because it's the oldest type of conditioning known. It was uh, discovered and, and described in the literature first. The key thing to realize about classical conditioning, or the important thing to understand, is that it requires a reflexive response or some stimulus that gives rise to an automatic innate reflex that is governed by the autonomic nervous system. So an innate reflex means that it happens automatically and without voluntary or conscious control. So an example of a reflex is if, if you touch a hot stove, your hand automatically draws back. For a reflex like that, the information does not actually need to travel all the way to the brain. It's just processed in the spinal cord, and then the information is sent directly to the, uh, to the neurons that innervate the skeletal muscles to withdraw the hand away from the, the source of the heat. So the point there is that no conscious control is necessary, or in most cases even possible, to exert over the, uh, the response. There's a stimulus gives rise to an innate reflexive response. That is essential for classical conditioning to occur. So without some source of innate reflexive response, you can't have classical conditioning. So the example, uh, the canonical example, which in initially led to the discovery of classical conditioning was salivation in anticipation of food, which I'll describe in a second. But there are many other examples of innate reflexes which can be uh, used to generate classical conditioning. So some examples of these sorts of reflexes that you can harness include various aspects of the sexual response, eye blink solicited by puffs of air directed at the eye, leg withdrawal from electric shock, or indeed any withdrawal from electric shock. Electric shocks are pretty good at eliciting uh, reflex responses. Uh, various emotional reactions such as fear or excitement or, or anger uh, as a result of various stimuli, uh, and also uh, associated uh, physiological indicators of those emotions like skin conductivity, heart rate, and so on. There are also other ones that are only found in animals, like reflexive pecking in certain birds, and also uh, s some birds have a reflexive response to uh, move around eggs or objects that are shaped like eggs if they're placed near them. Uh, there's also gagging, a nausea response, vomiting, coughing, and things like that if uh, objects are placed in the mouth or down the throat. So there are many, many different innate reflexive responses in humans and also in other animals which can be utilized uh, 
in, in classical conditioning. So just bear that in mind as I'm describing the elements of classical conditioning. Given that we require an innate reflexive response, classical conditioning is basically the process of harnessing this innate response to a stimuli. So you've got a stimuli and an innate response, which happens automatically. And what you do is you take some other stimuli, some random stimulus, it can be anything really, pair it with this uh, initial stimulus that gives rise to the reflexive response. So for example, pair it with the uh, the frightening situation that, that gives rise to the fear response, or the puff of air in the eye, or the food that gives rise to salvation. You pair the two stimuli together, and then, you, and then you present the second stimulus on its own, without the initial stimulus, and find that it gives rise to some response by itself, without the presence of the initial stimulus. That process of basically taking some initial neutral stimulus and then pairing it with the, with the initial stimulus, and then presenting the initially neutral stimulus by itself, and then it, having that stimulus give rise to some response, that process is called classical conditioning. Okay, so, so that's the basic idea. Pair stimuli together, then the initial neutral stimulus becomes a conditioned stimulus, which, which gives rise to a response, when previously it didn't. So first of all, I'll describe what Pavlov did, and then go through the elements of classical conditioning in more detail. Pavlov was actually, uh, Ivan Pavlov was a Russian uh, scientist in the late 19th, early 20th century. He was actually doing work on digestion and placing meat powder in dogs' mouths and measuring salivation as associated with that. But what he discovered, really by accident, was that dogs began anticipating their meals, or specifically they began salivating in anticipation of their, um, of their meals. When the person who brought them their meat powder or their food entered the room or even, I think, when they heard him coming, they began to salivate, even before the meat was actually there. So Pavlov noticed this and thought it would be an interesting thing to study, so he set it up in a proper experiment uh, format, where, whereby Pavlov sounded a tone and then fed, uh, that is, a bell, and then he fed the dogs some meat powder and placed it in their mouths and, uh, and measured the salivation that resulted. After a few repetitions, repetitions of this, he found that the dogs began salivating immediately upon hearing the tone, even before the meat powder had entered the dog's mouth. So in this situation, the, the reflexive response is the salivation. The initial stimulus that gave rise to that was the meat powder, but the, the new stimulus was the uh, ringing of the bell. And the conditioning occurred when the new stimulus was paired a few times with the old stimulus, and then was given by itself, and still gave rise to, to some response or some behavior. That is, the animal had learned to associate the tone with uh, the food, and therefore they were salivating in response to that. That's the initial experiment that uh, generated this concept of classical conditioning. Now I'm going to go through the elements in a bit more detail, uh, so that you can really understand it, because it's a little bit hard to keep all the concepts together, first, first blush. Okay, so there's five key elements in classical conditioning. The neutral stimulus, the unconditioned stimulus, the conditioned stimulus, the unconditioned response, and the conditioned response. So these are generally abbreviated, like NS for neutral stimulus, US for unconditioned stimulus, and so on, if you see those written. Okay, the neutral stimulus is pretty easy to understand. That's just any event, process, something happening. Uh, like in Pavlov's, Pavlov, in Pavlov's example, it was ringing the bell. Any event that does not cause an overt behavioral response. So it's just some event that doesn't do anything by itself. Ringing the bell, for example. The unconditioned stimulus... U.S. is a stimulus that automatically or naturally triggers a response uh, without any previous required, uh, requirements for learning or whatever. So, so this is the stimulus that generates the response by itself. So in, the, in Pavlov's case, the 
unconditioned stimulus was the meat powder. The meat powder, by itself, automatically triggered the unconditioned response, which is the reaction produced as the result of the unconditioned stimulus. So unconditioned stimulus, unconditioned response, they're the two things that happen automatically, that well, the stimulus gives rise automatically to the unconditioned response. Classical conditioning occurs when you pair the unconditioned stimulus with a neutral stimulus, which is just, remember, some other random stimulus that by itself doesn't do anything. You pair them together, and then you present the neutral stimulus just by itself. And what you'll find, if classical conditioning occurs, or is to occur, is that the neutral stimulus becomes the conditioned stimulus. So the neutral and conditioned stimulus are basically the same thing, except the, the conditioned stimulus is sort of what the neutral stimulus becomes after being paired with the unconditioned stimulus, or after the conditioning has occurred. So, neutral stimulus paired with unconditional stimulus, then the neutral stimulus is presented by itself. And if, it, if that gives rise to a response, when presented by itself, it's referred to as the conditioned stimulus, because it's now a stimulus that's giving rise to a response, but as a result of conditioning, so it's the conditioned stimulus. Now, the response elicited by the conditioned stimulus is the conditioned response. Now, in Pavlov's example, remember, the neutral stimulus was initially the bell ringing, but that then became the conditioned stimulus after it was paired with the provision of the meat powder. The conditioned response in Pavlov's case was exactly the same as the unconditioned response, that is, salivation. But, and that can often occur. Basically, the response is the same when presented with the unconditioned stimulus or the conditioned stimulus, in Pavlov's case, salivation, but they don't have to be the same, and that's the key thing, and we'll come to that in some later examples. The conditioned response, that is, the response after conditioning, does not have to be the same as the unconditioned response. They can be different. Okay, so bear those concepts in mind. The unconditioned stimulus gives rise to the conditioned stimulus. You pair the neutral stimulus with the unconditioned stimulus for a while. Then the neutral stimulus becomes the conditioned stimulus. You present the conditioned stimulus by itself, and it gives rise to the conditioned response, if conditioning occurs, of course. That whole process is called classical conditioning. Okay, now I just want to discuss a couple of other misperceptions of, of classical conditioning, if you have some familiarity with this or have heard of it before. One misperception is that you have to have repeated pairings of the neutral stimulus and the unconditioned stimulus in order for learning to occur. That is sometimes true, but it's not essential. Often you have to have repeated pairings, but not always. Sometimes a single trial is enough for conditioning to occur. Examples include fear conditioning and taste aversion conditioning, which we'll talk about later on. So often you need repeated pairings, but not always. Sometimes one trial is enough. And the other misperception that I discussed before, but I'll go over again, is that Classical conditioning only applies in sort of limited circumstances. That's sort of true in that you have to have a, a reflex, but it's not limited in the sense that it's just salivation or, or sort of mundane things. There are many different types of reflexes that can uh, be relevant to classical conditioning. Uh, for example, the startle reflex, emotional responses, taste aversions, the orienting reflex, one that I didn't mention before, that makes you pay attention to new stimuli, like sort of uh, noticing something when, when it just appears. So there are many, many reflex reactions that uh, can be relevant or can be utilized in classical conditioning. So now what I want to do is go through some examples of classical conditioning and I'll spell out exactly which are the conditioned responses, which are the unconditioned and so on, so that you can get the idea. Okay, so some of these will sound like somewhat odd situations, but just to give you the feel for it. Okay, so every time someone flushes a toilet in an apartment building, the shower becomes very hot and causes the person having a shower to jump back out of the water stream. Over time, the person begins to jump back automatically after hearing the flush before the water temperature even actually changes. So in this case, the unconditioned stimulus is the 
hot water or the increased temperature of the shower water and the unconditioned response is jumping it back uh, basically that reflex reaction jumping away from the very hot water the neutral stimulus is the sound of a flushing toilet but over time the neutral stimulus the flushing toilet is paired with the hot shower and the neutral stimulus becomes the conditioned stimulus which then gives rise to the conditioned response of jumping away from the hot water so in this case as well the conditioned and unconditioned responses are the same jumping away from the hot water Second example, you eat a new food and then become sick because of uh, the flu or some viral infection. Uh, as a result, you develop a dislike for the food and become to feel nauseated whenever you smell the food and therefore don't want to eat it. That's called taste aversion. Taste aversion, by the way, is a particularly common example of classical conditioning, and I'll talk about that in a bit more detail later on. So in this case, the neutral stimulus was the smell or taste of the food. The unconditioned stimulus is basically the infection or the illness, the flu virus, whatever exactly has caused you to become ill, and the unconditioned response is the feeling of nausea or sickness as a result. Therefore, the conditioned stimulus is the taste or smell of the food, and the conditioned response is feeling nauseous in response to smelling the food or tasting it. Once again, this is another example where the conditioned and unconditioned responses are basically the same thing, feeling nauseous. Moving on to the third example, an individual receives frequent injections of drugs which are administered in a small examination room at a local clinic. The drug itself causes increased heart rate, but after several trips to the clinic, the individual uh, begins to experience an increased heart rate simply by being in a small room. So in this case, the drugs themselves would be the unconditioned stimulus and the unconditioned response would be the increased heart rate. The uh, being located in a small room would be the neutral stimulus, which then becomes the conditioned stimulus upon pairing with the drug injections, and the conditioned response would once again be the increased heart rate. On to the fourth example, this is a famous one from John Watson, who conducted an experiment with a, a young boy, well, it was really a baby, called Albert, um, in which he paired a white rat with a loud, startling noise. So after a few trials, every time Albert... Uh, the baby just saw the white rat, uh, he began to cry because the loud noise had caused him to cry before, and now the, he had been conditioned to associate the rat with the loud noise. So in this case, the loud noise was the unconditioned stimulus, and the unconditioned response was Albert crying. The neutral stimulus, which then became the conditioned stimulus, was the white rat, the sight of the white rat, and the conditioned response was, again, Albert crying. The, this case is quite famous. It's sort of referred to as Little Albert. Um, I just wanted to point out that some of the claims that are made about Albert like f throughout his life having a fear of rats and rabbits or something like that is exaggerated. Basically, there was no follow-up, um, no extinction, which I'll talk about in a, in a second, uh, of the conditioning, but also no real follow-up to figure out if Albert was okay afterwards. So it's highly unlikely that one little experiment like this is going to have affected Albert throughout his life. Um, we don't really know, but just be wary if you hear claims about Albert having a fear of rabbits or rats throughout his life. That's probably not true. Okay, so that's some examples. Hopefully you now get the feel of what classical conditioning is. I now want to talk more about acquisition, that is how the conditioning process actually occurs and the factors that can alter that. Acquisition specifically refers to the training stage during which a neutral stimulus is transformed into a conditioned stimulus as a result of pairing with an unconditioned stimulus. Now the order and duration of the 
pre presentation of the neutral stimulus relative to the unconditioned stimulus uh, determines how easily and how quickly conditioning occurs. Optimum conditioning occurs when the neutral stimulus is presented first and then continues to be presented up until the unconditioned stimulus is presented. Uh, you can do it in lots of other ways as well. For example, the neutral stimulus could be presented and then taken away and then presented again and then taken away before the unconditioned stimulus, or it could even uh, occur, the neutral stimulus could occur after the unconditioned stimulus, or you could have a you could present the neutral stimulus and then have a substantial gap before presenting the unconditioned stimulus. But all of these variations result in slower and uh, less intense conditioning. The reason for this is essentially, as has been discovered with more recent work on classical conditioning, is that what fundamentally drives condition, and therefore classical conditioning, is the, predicti the predictive value of the neutral stimulus in, in making a prediction or in indicating the uh, imp impending presence of the unconditioned stimulus. So the better a predictor of the unconditioned stimulus, the neutral stimulus is, then the more likely and the more intense conditioning will be. That's why if the neutral stimulus occurs closer to the unconditioned stimulus, and if it occurs for a longer duration or more times, there'll be more intense conditioning. Similarly, the stronger the unconditioned stimulus is, then the stronger the unconditioned response will be, and therefore the stronger the conditioning will be. So the more intense the stimuli and responses are, the more strongly conditioning will occur. Also, generally, the more pairings you have of the neutral stimulus with the unconditioned stimulus, the stronger will be the conditioned response. So, so basically, you want the, in order to get maximum conditioning and fastest and strongest conditioning to produce the most robust, strongest conditioned response, you want to present the unconditioned uh, excuse me, the neutral stimulus, you want to present it as close in proximity and time to the unconditioned stimulus and present it and repeat that many times over and have the unconditioned stimulus and unconditioned response being strong uh, stimuli, strong response being very pertinent to the animal or, or human. Uh, there are a couple of other th things that uh, to say about acquisition. One interesting phenomenon is referred to as blocking. And basically what this means is that when an organism has been conditioned to a particular conditioned stimulus, or neutral stimulus becomes a conditioned stimulus, present, presentation of a different neutral stimulus, along with the initial unconditioned stimulus and then the conditioned stimulus, leads to much weaker conditioning of the second stimulus. So basically, if you have an unconditioned stimulus, then you condition, you, then you take neutral stimulus 1 and condition that, and it becomes the conditioned stimulus. Then you take neutral stimulus 2, so a new neutral stimulus, and try and condition that as well, it won't work, or doesn't work very well. Basically because the organism already has a reliable predictor of the unconditioned stimulus, uh, that being the first neutral stimulus, which became the conditioned stimulus, and so it doesn't need another one. So in effect, the first conditioned stimulus blocks the acquisition of a second conditioned stimulus. Another phenomenon is referred to as overshadowing, kind of like blocking, except that it happens when two neutral stimuli are presented at the same time, as opposed to one after the other. In that case, if you present two neutral, neutral stimuli along with the unconditioned stimulus, what will happen is the stronger or more salient neutral stimulus will overshadow uh, the weaker or less salient one, and therefore it will be conditioned. So, for example, if you give someone a substantial electric shock and also a puff of air in their face, either of those alone could, could be conditioned and could become the conditioned stimulus, but because an electric shock is going to be more salient, stronger, than a small puff of air, the electric shock would much more likely to be conditioned, therefore much more likely to become the conditioned stimulus than would the puff of air. So that's overshadowing. 
Okay, there are a few other uh, phenomenon that I wanted to talk about relevant to classical conditioning. Generalization, discrimination, extinction, and recovery. So these are after the conditioning has occurred, after it's been acquired. Um, these refer to basically what happens afterwards and, and some things you can do to play around with the conditioning process. So first of all, I'll talk about generalization. Generalization refers to the phenomenon whereby the conditioned response occurs when a stimulus, similar to but not identical, to the conditioned stimulus is presented. So basically what's happening is the organism, the organism generalizes the, uh, the learning or, or the conditioning to produce the conditioned response when stimuli, which are kind of like the original conditioned stimulus are presented, but they're not quite the same. So it, for example, it might be uh, experiments have been done where uh, animals who are conditioned using a tone, that is a sound of a particular volume and pitch, then will exhibit... Um, the, then will perf uh, then we'll exhibit the conditioned response when presented with tones of different pitches and volumes. So they've generalized the learning to other to tones of other volumes and pitches, or durations as well, even though they weren't conditioned on those particular volumes and pitches of sounds. Uh, a similar thing could occur in terms of smells. Maybe you were conditioned with a particular smell, but smells that smell sort of like that also elicit the unconditioned res the conditioned response. Um, it could also be objects. For example, in the little Albert case that I talked about before, he was conditioned... Uh, to, to fear white rats by the pr uh, presentation of the loud noise. But uh, as far as I remember, he generalized that conditioning to also have a fear of, of small bunny rabbits because they look kind of similar. So that's a generalization. Discrimination is really just the opposite of generalization, which is the fact that if the organism ha experiences repeated exposure to a similar stimuli that is not associated with the unconditioned stimulus, then the sort of false generalization is extinguished. It's discriminated between. Extinguished just means that essentially that the conditioning goes away. I'll talk about that more in a second. So but basically, discrimination is the opposite of generalization because generalization means you apply conditioning of one, one conditioned stimulus or one neutral stimulus to another conditioned stimulus, which is kind of similar. Discrimination means that even though they, even though the two stimuli are similar, you distinguish one from the other, or you discriminate them. You will respond. You will produce the unconditioned, excuse me, the conditioned response uh, in response to the conditioned stimulus, but not. You will not produce the response when presented with a similar uh, neutral stimulus. The key thing about discrimination is that even if there's an initial generalization, so, so suppose you have, you've got conditioned stimulus and then you present an, another neutral stimulus which is similar to the conditioned stimulus, initially the uh, conditioned response might be elicited. But over time, if the second neutral stimulus is repeatedly paired, excuse me, is repeatedly presented without the presence of the unconditioned stimulus, then uh, eventually, the organism will discriminate between the conditioned stimulus and the second neutral stimulus, or the second conditioned stimulus, and the second stimulus, the second conditioned stimulus, will be uh, discriminated from the first, and therefore it will, the, the response will, will cease. Because remember, it's all about predictive ability. If, say, if the white rat, to use the little Albert case, predicts a loud noise, but the white bunny rabbit doesn't, then eventually repeated exposure to the bunny rabbit without any loud noise will lead Albert to discriminate between seeing a white rat and seeing a bunny rabbit, as long as he has, you know, the visual system capable of making that distinction, of course, because one predicts the loud noise, but the other one doesn't. And so that leads me on to extinction and recovery, which is really the reverse process. It's sort of unconditioning. Extinction refers to the fact that 
If the conditioned and unconditioned stimuli are not paired together for a number of trials, the organism will stop exhibiting the conditioned response. Because remember, it's all about predictive power. The conditioned response occurs because the organism is expecting that the conditioned stimuli will occur before or occur with the unconditioned stimuli. The conditioned stimulus acts as a predictor for the unconditioned stimulus. In the, in the case of Pavlov's dogs, the conditioned stimulus of the bells ringing acted as a predictor for the unconditioned stimulus of the food. But if you presented bells, if you rung the bells many times without presenting food, you're presenting the conditioned stimulus without the unconditioned stimulus, and so eventually the, the conditioned response will stop, the dogs will stop salivating, because the conditioned stimulus is no longer predictive. The bells are no longer predictive of, of uh, food being brought. And so w once, you stop, once an organism stops exhibiting the conditioned response, that's referred to as extinction. The initial conditioning has been, ex has been made extinct. Now, recovery is sort of a corollary of extinction. It's an interesting finding that... Uh, so suppose you condition uh, a dog... Uh, to salivate in response to bells, and then you extinguish it. You you make that uh, conditioning extinct on one particular day. Then you come back the next day. It turns out that the conditioning or the conditioned response will spontaneously reappear again. This is called spontaneous recovery. Though it's generally somewhat weaker, the response is, is not as intense or not as likely as it was before. And then what you do if... Then suppose you, pe you um, present the conditioned stimulus without the unconditioned stimulus. You present the bells without the food. And once again, it caused the extinction of the conditioned response, then you come back the next day, and once again you'll, you'll generally um, have spontaneous recovery, although once again the, the conditioned response will be somewhat weaker. And basically, in order to have permanent extinction, what you have to do is continually extinguish it through a certain number of times, uh, uh, on a certain number of occasions, uh, until spontaneous recovery, recovery no longer occurs. So that's an interesting phenomenon, that extinction generally takes multiple times to occur, it's not just a, a single one time. Uh, and that can be particularly relevant for uh, for some applications of classical conditioning, such as those that I'll talk about now. Uh, for example, taste aversion. Taste aversion is a very important and common application of classical conditioning. Basically, it's, it's very common in humans, by the way, which is why it's such an important application, but also many other animals. Taste aversion occurs basically when humans, we'll talk about humans, but it can be other animals too, occurs when humans uh, become classically conditioned to... Uh, being averse to consuming certain types of food until extinction occurs, if ever. And the, the key thing about taste aversion is that it's a type of classical conditioning that can occur after only a single trial. So basically, if you eat a certain type of food and then become sick afterwards, regardless of whether that sickness was actually caused by the food or not, you can often develop an aversion to that type of food, that is, feel sick if you eat it or even feel sick at the thought or smell of it, just after a single trial, that is, a single pairing of the unconditioned stimulus, which is whatever actually caused you to be sick, and the conditioned stimulus, which is the food, both producing the response of feeling ill. And this is what I talked about before when I gave the taste aversion example of classical conditioning. So it's been shown that even something really obvious, like riding a roller coaster, I mean, that's going to make you feel sick for, for many people. If you eat a new type of food, say sushi, before you go on the roller coaster, then it could well be, it's quite likely, that the thought of sushi or the taste of sushi or the smell of sushi will make you feel sick the next time. Because essentially what, what what's happened is subconsciously you've paired the eating sushi with feeling sick afterwards. Even though you know you've been on a roller coaster and that's actually most likely what made you sick, not the sushi, it doesn't matter. You can still be conditioned to feel ill even at the thought of the sushi because that unconditioned stimulus of the roller coaster was associated with the conditions, well, the neutral and then became the conditioned stimulus of the sushi, both of which caused the response of feeling ill, feeling nauseous.
And so taste aversion is a common problem with certain medical conditions, for example, chemotherapy, because the, the chemicals that are being provided essentially to kill the cancer make the patient feel nauseous, uh, make you feel very sick. And so whatever the patient is eating at the time um, or before or during their treatment will be paired with that feeling of, uh, of, nauseous, uh, of nausea and what can happen is that the chemotherapy patients can actually go off their food, not just a particular type of food, but you know, all types of food. Even the thought of eating makes them sick. Now, taste aversion happens more readily to new foods or unknown foods than to existing foods, but it can happen to any type of food, really. And once again, the key thing about it is that it can happen after a single trial. It doesn't have to be repeated, which can make it very, uh, very problematic. And the reason it can happen after only a single trial is it's an example of preparedness, which is an interesting phenomenon that's been discovered in more recent classical conditioning research. Preparedness basically refers to the fact that some animals are predisposed uh, to become conditioned uh, to certain stimuli more than other stimuli. So humans, and some other, uh, many other animals it seems, are preconditioned, basically by evolution, to associate feeling sick with eating something, eating something bad. Uh, obviously, that's the evolutionary advantage of that is to avoid eating uh, things that are decomposing or uh, infected or uh, poisonous. It's much harder to be uh, conditioned to, say, sounds or certain colors, for example. Other animals are much easily, uh, for example, certain, I think it was ducks or maybe it was pigeons, but some type of bird was much more easily conditioned uh, to a certain a taste of water as, a, as opposed to something else. So it depends on the organism and, and the different senses that they use. If, if a, a particular sensory modality is more important for a particular organism, it's more likely that evolution will have prepared them to be uh, strongly conditioned using that modality. Okay, so that's taste aversion. Now I just want to talk about some other applications of classical conditioning because I think too often when this is presented in an intro psych course or textbook or something, you know, they go through Pavlov's theory and the conditioned and unconditioned stimulus and so on, but they don't really explain why this is important or interesting because it sounds kind of dry. Uh, but it is actually very relevant because, remember, although classical conditioning requires some kind of inherent innate reflex, these are actually quite common. And so there are many reflexes that... that humans and other animals exhibit, which can then be conditioned and can actually change behavior in very important ways. So some examples are a drug tolerance, where the behavior or environment of drug taking functions as a signal or condition stimulus that predicts the introduction of the drug to the body. So what can actually happen is that the body can start releasing, uh, can trigger an anticipatory response, which would be the condition response, uh, su such as the secretion of certain chemicals that help to eliminate the drug from the body. So simply being in the environment where someone takes drugs, these could be recreational drugs or uh, medical drugs, um, or you know, seeing the needles or whatever, or even something like alcohol, seeing a bottle of beer, can become conditioned with physiological neurochemical responses that actually change your physiology. Another example is conditional immune response. Is that some experiments have demonstrated that exposure to particular odors can be conditioned when associated with some illicit substance which will, which will trigger an immune response. So after a certain number of trials, the immune response, as measured by you know, a, number of, a certain type of white blood cells, for example, actually increases in the organism merely after uh, being exposed to a particular odor even though, uh, even without being exposed to the actual pathogen that would actually trigger the immune response. So basically the immune system itself can respond to, can be classically conditioned. Another very common example is emotional responses. There are obviously many, you probably know this yourself, um, situations where very innocuous stimuli, 
like seeing a certain person or hearing certain words or being in a certain location uh, can be conditioned so that they elicit very uh, strong emotional reactions like fear, anger, or anxiety, etc. Sexual response is another case of that. Um, so, so, for example, if someone you know sees a, a microphone, um, sees a stage, a podium, so on, they may have associated that stimuli with public speaking, which they find um, they may find difficult to do. Therefore, they begin to feel anxious or even have a panic attack in response to that. And so, as I was saying, sexual anticipation or the sexual response is a is a complicated emotional neurochemical reaction, which once again is subject to classical conditioning. So one particularly interesting experiment with rats, the male rats were provided with sexual partners, with multiple sexual partners, in the same environment for a number of days. And it wasn't long before that all the rats had to do was be placed in that environment, even without any sexual partners, and an eight-fold rise in sexual hormones was measured. So basically the sexual hormones, the endocrine system of these rats was responding to the conditioned stimulus producing a conditioned response of... Um, uh, sexual anticipation preparatory to, uh, to copulation. Classical conditioning has also been proposed as an explanation for sexual paraphilias, basically uh, sexual fetishes, where people have this sort of strange, uh, aroused by rather strange stimuli. It could be that those stimuli were originally paired with some other unconditioned stimulus, which, which then resulted in them becoming conditioned, although I don't think that that has actually been proven, but it's, it's certainly plausible given what we know about classical conditioning. Okay, so that's uh, all I want to say about classical conditioning. It has many applications, as I've just uh, tried to illustrate. Keep a look out for the follow-up to this on operant conditioning, which will be appearing shortly. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.